0: June 27th, 1880 in, in Northwest Alabama was a, a beautiful morning for the Keller family when Helen Keller was born. Um, Helen Keller was born uh, a healthy baby girl, uh, having all of her kind of functions. Um, she could see, she could hear, and then 19 months later after her birth, she contracted a fever. Uh, there's no guarantee that it was scarlet fever or meningitis, um, but this fever ended up taking some of her faculties, some of uh, her ability to see, her ability to hear, and, and so for the following six years, her parents did not know what to do, didn't know how to respond to her, didn't know how to engage her well as now this baby girl has now grown, is unable to see, unable to to hear, And then six years later, uh, Ann Sullivan came into her life. Ann Sullivan became a teacher for Helen Keller. That was this beautiful support for Helen that she didn't have. And her life would have turned out very different if Ann Sullivan wasn't there. She became Helen's teacher and, and ended up changing Helen's life. And in Helen Keller's autobiography, The Story of My Life, she de- describes what... Change when Ann Sullivan came into her life. She says, "This have you ever been at sea in a dense fog when it seemed as if a tangible white darkness shut you in, and the great ship, tense and anxious, groped her way toward the shore with plummet and sounding line, and you waited with beating heart for something to happen? I was like that ship before my education began, only I was without compass." Our sounding line, and had no way of knowing how near the harbor was. Light, give me light, was the wordless cry of my soul, and the light of love shone on me in that very hour. It's this profound story of Ann Sullivan and how she helped transform the life of Helen Keller's inspiration in so many, so many ways. And I think the experience that Helen Keller describes uh, there is something similar to the experience of the man that we're going to find in John chapter 9. We're in a a teaching series in the Gospel of John, and we're walking through the stories of the Gospel of John. We're in a section in John 6 through 11 where we're focusing on these I Am statements that Jesus uses throughout specifically this section in particular, and we're going to be continuing in that this morning. In In the text this morning, we're going to find um, there, are, there are seven signs in the Gospel of John. And you can miss them. John doesn't always explicitly uh, tell us about them. But there are these handful of signs that are pretty uh, significant as we navigate through them. I just want to remind you of them as we kickstart our time together. There's seven to review. The first is the turning water into wine. That was a sign that took place in John chapter 2. We see the healing of the nobleman's son in John 4 and the healing of the man at the pool in John 5. In John 6, we saw two signs, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water. And then a few chapters later, the text we're in this morning, we're going to see a healing, uh, healing a man born blind take place through Jesus. And then lastly in John 11, we'll get to that in a few weeks. And so I want to keep this in mind as we're navigating through the text this morning. What is this sign? trying to tell us? What is Jesus trying to communicate to us as we consider this text? So John chapter nine, we'll start in verse one. It says this. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not That this man sinned, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We'll pause there for a few minutes. It begins and it says, within just a few words of this chapter, it says, He saw a man. And we can overlook the profound nature of the fact that he saw a man. These little phrases are, are so pregnant with goodness. I love moments when the text will tell us through the Gospels that Jesus saw him. Just three little words that you can just shoot on by. But there's profound implications, especially a text like this. that This, this man didn't see Jesus. We know he was blind from birth. So this man didn't have any idea that Jesus was walking by him but Jesus saw him the compassion of our lord is immense it's tender it's profound it's the reason why we want to profess faith in him because he sees him and he saw us he saw him we'll get to that get back to that a little bit more in a little bit and the disciples are watching along as we do. They're kind of people watching. They just do the thing that we do when we're kind of just awkwardly looking at somebody that's a little bit different than us. And maybe looking a little too long. And then they look back at us. You know those moments when you kind of feel like, oh shoot. And you kind of pretending like you weren't doing anything. But you know you were doing it. And they know that you, that you were doing it. And that kind of happens. And so this happens. And <clears throat> the disciples are in this moment. And they, they just lean over to Jesus. And they're like, hey, what, what happened? Like, he's been blind. What's the cause? Why? why is it, did something he do wrong? Or maybe it was his parents. What, what's going on here? Who sinned? Their wheels are churning. See, the disciples at this point have not pro- progra- progressed past Job's friends. If you remember the story in Job, and again, we'll get into that more in a minute. They're, they're trying to flesh out the ramifications of the fall. Like How do we understand suffering? How do we understand difficulty? How do we understand loss? And Jesus responds to the disciples and he says, Neither this man nor his parents. Neither, neither of them are reasons for why uh, this man is blind. And then he says, "But It happened that God's work may be displayed, specifically the sixth sign. He's refer- referring to the sixth sign here as a sign that is a reflector of something that's really important. And then Jesus says, we must work while it's still day. He's referring to his mission. He's referring to the expansion of the proclamation of the Messiah. He's referring to his kingdom, which has come. And then, and then Jesus goes on, and he spits into this dirt. And we don't understand. Commentators are debate on why in the world... Did Jesus decided to do this. He takes dirt and he, he hawks a loogie. Yes. Into, let's just, I mean, it's just it's another translation. He, and so he spits into the dirt and he mixes it together and makes mud. Because when you mix uh, a, a watery substance, which would be saliva, with dirt, and you mix it together, you create mud. And then he places that on this man's eyes, both of them. So he's got mud over his eyes and over his eyelids. And then he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. And the man does. And then when he does, his eyes are opened. And again, this dude was blind from birth. And so you can imagine, potentially, in your mind's eye, what was it like for the first color to flood his eyes? light invading his corneas, this feeling of hope and clarity, like whoever brought him to the pool, seeing them for the first time, like we read books and we can have an idea of what somebody should look like, and then we watch the movie, and it's like, I had no idea that that was what you were thinking that they would look like, right, if you've ever read a book before, you might have experienced that, and so in the same way, this got an idea of what they could potentially look like, and yet he then sees them. Has this profound moment, similar to, again, Helen Keller, when she had that experience with her teacher and what took place there. And this man found hope in being able to see. And in the following 20 verses in the middle section of John is this barrage of questions toward this man. It begins with their, his neighbors. They're bewildered. I mean, they grew up with this dude. They re- remembered when mom and dad brought him home. And all of a sudden, years and years and years later, he's now saying he can see. So people are coming up to him, is he really the neighbor? Is he really the guy that you knew? Like, is this really the same guy? Or does he have one of those familiar faces? Like, is this really the guy? Like, yeah, he's totally the guy. And then the Pharisees get involved and the intensity heats up. They begin to ask, how did you regain your sight? And like previous moments, they don't care about the benefit of life that Jesus is providing. They're frustrated that, again, Jesus did it on the Sabbath. So they're, again, so annoyed. Again, it's not about the man who is lame, that now can walk with a mat. It's not about that. It's the emphasis that was done on the Sabbath. In the same way, and that was in John 5. And then again, in John 9, we see the situation where this man can see. and They don't give a rip. They're frustrated at the fact that it was done. Jesus decided to do it on the Sabbath, so they pull out this investigation. And they summon his parents. They pull him to the side. Say, "Tell us exactly what happened. Who did this? When did it happen?" They begin to push him and ask him questions. What do you know about this? And for fear of being banned from the synagogue, they plead the fifth. They keep it vanilla. They say, just ask him. Like I, we, don't, we don't want to get banned from the synagogue. We don't understand what happened. Talk to him about it. And so five times from verses 13 through 26, we hear their persistence of the Pharisees, that the Pharisees asked, and they asked again, and then they asked him, and then they summoned him, and then they asked him. Five times in these few verses, and the, the text culminates in, in John chapter 9, verse 25. And he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So I don't don't know much, guys. I don't know why you guys keep trying to corner me. I just, one thing I can tell you, I was blind, now I can see. Y'all figure in the details, once I was blind, now I can see. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, you cannot argue about this text. You can't in this verse. You cannot argue a man out of an experience of this kind. And if the Lord Jesus Christ has ever opened your eyes, dear friends, nobody can make you doubt that blessed fact. So he's like, I don't give a rip what you're trying to do here, but I was blind and now I see. So there's two things I want us to consider about this section this morning. One is around suffering And one is about spiritual blindness. Suffering and and spiritual blindness I want to consider with you this morning. The first, I want to consider how to think about suffering. How ought we to think about suffering? See, when the disciples ask, why is this man blind? Whose sin was it that caused this man to blind? They're asking about the problem of suffering. They're trying to understand, again, in their mind, trying to get their head around this dynamic. See, there's an underlying assumption that anyone's, anyone who's suffering is suffering because of their sin or someone who's directly related to them. This raises a question about suffering. C.S. Lewis called it the problem of pain. And it's a huge problem for many of us. Life will make us bleed. We speak about that on the regular. Pain and sorrow strike and they leave scars on us. Suffering isn't empathetic, it hits us when we don't expect it, and we're all but one doctor's phone call away from our life turning around in the most unopportune time. We understand the realities of suffering. We know for my wife and I when we miscarried Theo um, at 20 weeks, I was face to face with holding my little lifeless dude. Spina bifida was the cause, and I had no grid for that until it was my reality. I didn't prepare for that, I didn't read books on it. There was no studies that I did to lead me to that that moment. It just happens. All of a sudden, everything changes. When I think of our community, I know we suffer in ways like this. All of us could multiply these moments with pain and loss, with betrayal, with sickness, with death. We're acquainted with this. We feel these questions. Why do people, people suffer in this world? It is perhaps the, the greatest question of all. Why? Why do these kind of things happen? Why did Helen Keller lose her sight and hearing, though she was born with sight and hearing? Why are some children born with spina bifida or other birth defects? It, is it because of someone's personal sin, either their parents or their own the scripture is clear that suffering is a result of sin in general. But we can misapply its application like the disciples did. So there's two approaches, common approaches, that we even uh, Christians can make in thinking about suffering and its relationship to sin in the world. The first is uh, what would be called maybe like an anger track, an anger perspective. The other would be uh, maybe more of a guilt Track or perspective. The anger track is is blaming someone else, and the disciples were doing this. People with uh, emotional or personal pain—some of you here uh, uh, would fit under that. Um, Where maybe in this track, you you blame your upbringing, you blame your parents, you blame God, and so you live in that track. It can lead to anger. It can lead to bitterness. There's this deep angst and frustration towards God or towards other people because of the problems that are in our life. So there's a, an anger track that we can kind of go down. Or there's a guilt track where you blame yourself. This is the idea that suffering happens quid pro quo. It's uh, I suffer so much because I've sinned so much. And contrary to that, I, if I live a good life, then I won't suffer much. Those things can just bleed into our faith in a way that's very ugly and will only lead to frustration. If you believe I can do certain things to have a good life, or if I do certain bad things, then bad things will happen to me. And that's what karma affirms. the The universal. I don't remember. I didn't put who, who said this quote. is probably. Uh, Oxford Dictionary we'll just go there. The universal causal law this is karma, by which good or bad actions determine the future modes of an individual's existence, that you get what you deserve. So we, we blame it on that. And the reality is this: the Gospel of grace is in direct opposition to the doctrine of karma. There's no similarity there. And in reality, suffering is, is not those two tracks. It's so much more complex. That. In the wisdom literature, Job reminds us of the complexity of suffering. And it's incredibly complex. If we consider Job, he's a man who's righteous, and he's the most righteous man on the face of the earth. And the scripture tells us that from that position, he dealt with extraordinarily painful loss and suffering lost everything that was dear and close to him. Something that we've never experienced. Now Job finds himself angry because of his suffering in this story. But his friends are blaming him for his suffering. They point the finger at him that there must be a hidden sin, Job, for this kind of level of suffering to happen. You're not confessing something. There's got to be more under the hood. What's happening that's caused this suffering to take place? And then when God finally comes on the scene at the end of the book, he rebukes Job and he rebukes his friends. And Job, because of his anger and his friends because of blaming. And then Job is is recalibrated. So the answer of Scripture is that suffering is a result of sin in general. That Oftentimes we can't trace. We can't trace particular sufferings to particular sins, especially not in the lives of other people. So Jesus isn't teaching us what we should think about suffering. He's teaching us how to think about suffering, to understand that it won't always make sense. You can't trace the lines from point A to point B to get to point C. It's not how life works. Tim Keller's wife, the one who passed several months ago, Tim Keller, his wife who's still alive. She has Crohn's disease, and she shared about the hardship, including 25 surgeries that she's had. And she had a talk called, Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And in it she said this, It is possible to waste the experience of suffering by indulging in one of the several forms of denial. I expect that some people listening to me have already encountered sorrows of one kind or another and come up with a common strategy to ignore them. To put your head down, clench your teeth, and wait for it to be over. You can waste your sorrows and afflictions by being consumed with anger Anger at God anger at whatever forces you believe the lie behind your suffering It's profound words from a fellow suffer sufferer she invites us to not deny those to to recognize that even in the midst of the sorrow and the pain of it to recognize that a story is being woven together I want to continue on with this theme and just consider four truths for maybe even doctrines uh, of the Christian faith that I find would be very helpful as we deal with pain, suffering, and evil. Uh, Four things to consider. The first is that God rules. That God rules. The first relevant Christian belief is in a personal, wise, infinite, and therefore inscrutable God who controls the affairs of the world. And that is far more comforting than the belief that our life is in some fickle, fate, to believe that God rules, that Satan prowls, yes, that Satan seeks to steal, yes, to destroy, yes, he seeks to do all of those things, and Satan is on a leash. It's important to remember that God, he rules. The second thing we ought to note is that Jesus, who is God, suffered. Jesus suffered The second crucial tenet is that Jesus, God himself, came to earth and suffered sacrificially. And that is far more comforting than the idea that God is remote and uninvolved. God is not remote. He's not uninvolved. He's not aloof. He is acquainted with our weaknesses. He's aware of our suffering. He is the man of sorrows. God is aware of suffering, and he came to deal with them once and for all. Jesus, he suffered. The third thing to consider is that assurance is given. Suffering is not a payment for sin. It's not the way it works. The story of the gospel reminds us that God wrote himself into our story, and he is with us in our suffering. That's the assurance that God is with us in our suffering. He will never leave us or forsake us. Things will betray you. Things will hurt you. People will will go through loss and death and God will never leave you or forsake you. He's aware of the fall. He's aware of sorrow. He's aware of pain. And we're gonna lean into this even more in John 11 in a couple of weeks where we have this encounter of Jesus with Lazarus and his death, and his weeping, and there's something incredibly profound about that that we'll get to in a few weeks, but we'll leave it here for now. As Luther taught, suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is for you and with you. God is for you, and he's with you. It doesn't resolve our suffering. It doesn't resolve the pain, but the comfort of knowing that God is with us is beautiful. We don't serve an aloof God. We do not worship a God who's distant. He's well aware of the details of life. Secularism can't provide this. But God is working all things for good, even when it's dark and painful. And lastly, the last consideration for us is that Jesus rose. Oh, friends, death does not have the final word. I mean, I hope that we get this in our bones more and more we gather to remember that death does not have the final word, that the reality of the resurrection is profoundly beautiful for us. Early that Sunday morning, a new day dawned and a new king was on the move. Jesus rose and gave us a down payment that he would come again, which stabilizes our hearts in a beautiful way. Jesus rose and and will raise up all who have believed. Again, John 11, we're getting into that even in more detail. One of the deepest desires of the human heart is for love without parting. And the resurrection is incredibly comforting in knowing that that is our future reality by faith in Jesus. His resurrection goes beyond just some ethereal promise, but it reminds us of of the bodily resurrection of Jesus as a down payment that he will restore all things. All sad things will come untrue. All broken things will be healed and mended. The blind will be able to see. The deaf will be able to hear. The lame will be able to walk. The dead will live again. And we long for it. And we feel it. More and more, even it causes us to long for Jesus to come again. See, how we think about suffering gives us stability to walk through the realities of life. It's a good sound. We're good. (laughs) And then the second consideration for us is that the human condition is this. We are all born spiritually blind. We are all born spiritually blind. Why is this a sign gift? Like, why did Jesus specifically lay out this moment to create a sign? What is he reflecting? What is he pointing to? Why did Jesus heal this man? What is the point? So Jesus says the purpose of this is for God's work to be displayed. And so we see it in John chapter 9, verse 39 and following. It says this, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. See, this story, this sign, it illustrates our human condition, that we are all, all, what Jesus would tell us, we're all born spiritually blind. It communicates that that this man lacked a a faculty. One of his senses did not work. He was unable to see. There was nothing he could do to fix his condition. He was born blind. So think this through. He was born without this faculty. He was born without the ability to see. So someone blind from birth could never know what red was. What the colors of pink and purple and a sunrise are. What the colors of a rainbow communicate? What they, uh, what we see. So you can't describe red with another sense. Red is not like the sound of a trumpet. Red is not like the feeling of silk. You can't use another faculty to communicate this. Blind sight is not an extension of hearing. Sight is not an extension of touch. So red is not something you can hear. It's not something you can feel. It is something you see. Likewise, becoming a good Christian isn't moral progress or turning a leaf. No matter who we are, how nice or nasty we are, we need spiritual sight. And you can't just develop that by doing good things for God. Like the faculty just isn't there. You need someone outside of you to open up your eyes to see. You can't simply work your way towards that. So, Jesus is telling us I am the light of the world, I am the one that opens up eyes. You cannot just become a moral person and then find your way into the kingdom of God. You must have your eyes opened because we are blinds. It's a miracle, it's a gift. Only God gives. So in Second Corinthians chapter 4, 4 and 6, it says this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It goes on in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, so there was a point in all of our lives where grace didn't make sense and we warred against it. There was a point when Jesus was not attractive, was not alluring. Our hearts were not warmed by him. For what it's worth, you are not less blind if you grew up in the church. We're all blind. We're all blind from birth. We didn't see spiritual things because of our blindness. And when we see, Like this man, when he saw, he saw trees and blue skies and beauty he didn't see before. When we see, we see our need, our need for a savior. We see the gift of grace in Jesus. And we humble ourselves to the ways and leadership of Jesus. When our eyes are opened, we recognize that our ways and our values and the values of this world do not line up with the ways and values of Jesus. And when our eyes are opened and we see, we see a whole new way that it's not a political party of, I was a Democrat and then my eyes are open, now I'm a Republican. Like that's not at all the gospel. The gospel is, is opposite. It is paradoxical to that. that. That It's not of this world in our eyes being opened. We now see a distinct other way, a way of the kingdom of Jesus. And we submit him, love that this text begins by saying that Jesus saw him. Remember that phrase that God was rich in mercy. He made the first move, he pursued, he leaned in. Friends, do you know that Jesus saw you and sees you? There was an Englishman named John Newton who spent a chunk of his life traveling to Africa, searching the coast. Uh, for slaves to capture them and eventually to sell them for profit. And on one journey, he hit a storm and nearly died. And in that moment, he turned his life and ambition around. And God changed him from a man who was an advocate for slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. And in 1773, he penned these famous words echoing the blind man. I was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. See, this is the invitation for all of us, that we who are blind can see. For those who follow Jesus, to allow worship to arise in our hearts, the one thing I know, just like that blind man, I don't understand all the details, but I know I was, I was blind. I know I loved the world, I loved lust, I loved pride, I loved envy, and then Jesus opened my heart. And man, I feel the temptation to go back but I long to be freed in my heart. One thing I know is that once I was lost, once I was blind, and now I see. So for those feeling the confusion of life, feeling the throes of suffering, we're invited to entrust God in it, in the unknowns, in the uncertainties, in the confusion. We look back to Helen Keller's story. Six years, they didn't know what to do. It can be years where things are just confusing. I would just say keep trusting. Keep trusting in a good God even though we might not have answers. Your only answer may be that he is with you and sometimes that's enough. So we're invited to trust God and secondly we're invited to see. I can't assume that just because you come here that you uh, can see. And so I invite you I invite you to the grace of God. I invite you to the gift of God for you that you who uh, are or were blind can see because of Jesus. And it happens by faith. So John's telling us over and over and over and over and over again to believe, to believe, to believe. Not to force yourself into have faculties that you don't have, but to believe that something outside of you can open up your heart by faith to see something beautiful. And that something beautiful is Jesus Friends, we are reminded. Suffering's real. Jesus never avoids it. He never avoids it, so we don't need to. And we were once blind, and now we can see. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Hmm. Lord, thank you for the good book. Thank you for the story. Gosh, we need it. We need to be reminded that you're at work. You haven't left us. And so Lord, I ask that you would provide us with the things that we need. I know we all come with different things and I pray above all that we would sense that you're with us and you're at work. Would you remind us of the hope that we have in you? Truly, the only hope in this world the only hope in life and death. It is not someone on a platform. It is not some leader. It is not some pastor. It is not some political entity. It is Christ alone. And weave it into our soul more, Lord. There is only one hero in this story, and his name is Jesus. Give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. For those that are ministering the elements, come on up. Our prayer team can come on up. I oftentimes forget this. uh, There is a gluten-free option that just stays on this table. And so if that's something that would be helpful for you, just let you know that's there.